Morning church. Pull this up a little bit. Got my water, so I don't have to clean my throat so much. Drives my wife nuts when I do that, apparently. You know, whenever I step up to do a lesson, my family instantly gets really nervous. Because they're like, what are you going to say about us? Some of my best examples for sermons are from my family life. My my son said this morning, I'm not talking to you the rest of the day if you say anything about me. In fact, that'll be the rest of the week if you say anything about me. It's not quite that bad. I I was actually debating this morning whether I should preach, you know, with my glasses or with, you know, without my glasses or with my glasses. Um, There are a few pros and cons. If I don't have my glasses, I can't see my wife rolling her eyes, my jokes. You know, I can't, I can't see Dave shaking his head when I, when I, when I, you know, make a a point. Um, I can't see people yawning in the back, uh, looking at their watch, going, "Is it?" Um, You know, and, and since, and since. And since, you know, I should probably be preaching by faith, not by sight, maybe I'll just take my classes off this morning. Maybe that's what I should be doing. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But um, I'm filling in for Dave this morning. Um, Dave, of course, is, is, is still here, but uh, he had surgery this week and it went really well. And apparently uh, he asked for a little extra in his operation. He asked that if they could please just also do, do, do a bit of tinkering with his vocal cords so he could now sound Kiwi. He was going to be really excited about that. Yeah, he's nodding, see? Um, we've, got a, we've got a few people visiting with us this morning, so I'd like to welcome um, a Canadian couple, so Stuart and Carlotta. Where are you guys? You want to stand up? Yeah. We're our brothers and sisters from uh, Canada, eh? Yeah. Welcome. Glad to have you guys with us. And uh, also, uh, Manoha and his family are with us again for another six months. Great to see you guys back. Now, this morning I did actually warn Stuart. I said, you know, in, in honour of Canadians, I've got a Canadian joke this morning. So I did, I did actually warn him. Um, you know, there, there was a Canadian, I mean, there's only one of them, but there was a Canadian once upon a time who actually wanted to become an American. So he goes into immigration, right? And he said, look, I want to become an American. And immigration said, that, that, look, that's, I guess that's okay. Once upon a time, you used to fill in forms before you could pick up American. Now we take half your brain out. Because if you want to go right there now, and he goes, doesn't sound so bad, we'll give that a go. So, you know, and he's on the operating table and he wakes up and the doctor's just looking just, just beside himself. He's sweating. And he looks at the doctor, and the doctor says, look, I'm, 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 I'm just terribly sorry. We, we, we messed up the operation completely, and we, we took out most of your brain. And he goes, it's truth, Cobber, how do I sing Walsy Matilda now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Preach it. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid this morning I've actually packed too much into my sermon. Um, the last four or five months of things I've been learning and studying, I've, I've actually put, tried to put a lot of these things in my sermon. I've, I counted it up. Normally it takes eight minutes a page, roughly, and I've got six pages. So I'm going to try and talk a little bit faster or cut it down a little bit. Uh, so the book of Galatians, we've been going through the book of Galatians. We're into chapter, um, chapter four. So if you could please turn there. If you're visiting, I'm going to do a very quick recap. Um, The rest of us who have been listening to Galatians were very aware of what was happening in the church in Galatia when Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. They were starting to follow a different gospel introduced by Judaistic teachers. They were saying to be a Christian, you had to also follow the law to be accepted by God or to be one of his people. Paul also defended his apostleship and his ongoing role in teaching them and calling them to the gospel. Now what's kind of interesting about this particular conflict is that this conflict comes up in other books too. It comes up in the book of Acts. It comes up in Romans. It comes up in Hebrews. It comes up in Philippians. And in Philippians, Paul says, beware of those mutilators of the flesh. And he's talking about people who say you have to be circumcised to be able to be saved as part of that covenant. So this was probably one of the biggest ongoing issues within the church in the first century. Persecution was also an issue, but that was more external. This was going on throughout much of the first century. And in Galatians 4, Paul tries to teach the comparison between the Old Testament law and why the New Testament covenant and being saved under Christ is the only way to salvation. It is the supreme way to salvation. So let's read together Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written... Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So Paul refers back to this episode in Genesis to try and teach them about the law and the new covenant. Um, So we have to look at the significance of what Paul was saying and then what the significance could be for us. Paul contrasts two women in Israel's history, Sarah and Hagar. So we kind of need to know their story to understand what Paul is talking about. And their story is found in Genesis 16. I'm just going to paraphrase it rather than... uh, speaking it out. Um, And he uses them symbolically to teach the difference between being under law and being under Jesus. So Sarah and Abraham, we're we're probably all familiar with Sarah and Abraham, right? They've been promised a son, an heir by God, and through that heir, Abraham would become the father of many nations. Abraham and Sarah were waiting for this child, and nothing seems to be happening. So Sarah says, 
God has not granted me any children. Abraham sleep with my Egyptian maidservant Hagar, and she will produce children and will have our descendants. So he does. And then Hagar falls pregnant, but Hagar despises Sarah, and Sarah mistreats her, and Hagar runs away. God reaches out to Hagar. She comes back, and then when Abraham is 100 years old, and Sarah was 90 years old, Sarah is pregnant with Isaac. By God's miraculous power and divine intervention. And Paul uses the story to teach about the law and about Jesus. And there's a lot of messianic similarities between Sarah and Mary. Mary's pregnancy and Sarah's pregnancy were both acts of divine intervention. Abraham went to sacrifice his son as a proof of love for God. God sacrificed his son as a proof of his love for us. There's a lot of messianic similarities between um, Abraham, the story of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and the story of Jesus. But what's his point? What's he trying to teach the Galatians? One child was born because of human effort, right? Ishmael, Hagar's son. Abraham and Sarah wanted a child and wanted God's blessing, but they decided to take matters into their own hands to accomplish what God was trying to promise them. All right? It wasn't part of God's plan, and it caused all kinds of strife and all kinds of trouble and all kinds of unnecessary pain trying to do it their way. Isaac, however, as described by Paul, says he was born in the power of the Spirit. All right? Isaac was born by divine intervention, and he was able to be conceived. It was beyond Abraham and Sarah's ability to accomplish that. And Paul was saying to the Galatians, do you want to be like the children of the slave woman, when men try and take matters into their own hands and try and bring about God's promises of salvation by human effort? By following the law? Or do you want to receive God's promises and salvation by spiritual intervention and divine promise? Which one is it? How do you want to live? In slavery or because of the promise? Right? You've got two choices here. Slave to the law or believing in the promise? Those are the two choices before you. Slave or free? In verses 24 and 26, he, he also used the symbolism of the physical Jerusalem and the physical people of Israel at that time, and he contrasts that with the spiritual Jerusalem in heaven. What about us? What, is it, what does it kind of mean for us? I mean, there's, there's kind of some interesting Jewish history there, right? But is it, how do we apply that to our lives? Well, I think, first of all, we, we can be like Abraham and Sarah in the story and take matters into our own hands instead of trusting God's promises and having faith in his plans. Especially if we're waiting for God to work like Abraham and Sarah, waiting for him to answer our prayers or fulfill our hopes or waiting for his promises to come true. Just, just take a moment. What is it that you want right now that God does not seem to be granting you? What is it that you are praying about? What is it that you are hoping for that you are waiting for God to bring about and it doesn't seem to be happening? Abraham and Sarah had to wait, I think it was something like 25 years for that promise to come through. And God came through. There's no doubt about it. God came through. What is it that you want right now that God does not seem to be willing to grant you? Is it something to do with your health? Is it something in your relationships? As a parent, is there something you want to see in your children or is there something you want for your children that does not seem to be happening? I think, I think for the men, sometimes we get overwhelmed thinking about our financial security. 
looking after the family financially. We don't want to be constantly thinking about how to pay the bills, about how to cover our costs of living. It's this nagging responsibility in the back of our minds, and we have to be constantly managing it. But sometimes it distracts us from having deeper relationships. It distracts us from doing ministry. It distracts us from investing in our marriages or our family. Sometimes we, we, we're tempted to take job offers that compromise our ability to participate in the body of Christ because we're trying to attain financial security. All right? And sometimes we can, we, you know, when God talks about, I'll look after you, and we're like, it doesn't feel like it. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and do these things. And uh, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. Teens. I love our teens. Where's our teens? One hand, one hand went up. Really? Oh, James, James is the teen. Awesome. <laughs> you know what? I, it's always easy because I always just sit over there, right? So we just, I just look left. Teens, teens look left. Uh, look, I, you know, I love the teens. I see our future leaders and backbone of our church taking shape and growing before our eyes. It's awesome. It's really awesome. Uh, it's exciting to see you grow and mature and, yes, struggle, but you're part of a bigger family and we're looking out for you. Love our teens. I think, though, teens have challenges that, that uh, it's hard to appreciate sometimes. There's times I think teens deeply desire acceptance from your peers at school, your school friends. Sometimes it doesn't matter, but sometimes it seems to intensely matter that we're accepted by our peers at school. And that's kind of how we're made. We're made to look, for our, look to our, teen, our peers for acceptance, for community, for friendship. And when you want to be accepted by your, your peers and by God, Sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes it works out, but sometimes it's not possible. You have to make a choice. Who do I please? Do I please my friend and be accepted by them? Or do I choose to, be, do I choose to please God instead? Sometimes you have to make a stand on that. Sisters. These little sub I showed this point to my, my wife. She said, yeah, that, 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 they'll, they'll probably fly. <laughs> do, you, do you struggle with fear and worry? Is that true? Sisters sometimes struggle. Fear and worry and anxiety. It's funny, it just, it just struck me one day how often sisters start a sentence with, I'm afraid that. I'm afraid that. Um, and it's natural to have fear, but it's not good to be controlled by fear or be acting often out of fear. And we can be controlled by fear and anxiety about many things. How we parent, how we operate in our marriage. Uh, we do things because we're afraid of what might happen. We're afraid of what could happen. We're afraid of what has happened. Right? Worst case scenario, and suddenly we're like, oh my goodness, I can't handle that. And it motivates us to, to do whatever we're doing in life. All right? And we get overwhelmed by the possibilities of worst case scenarios. And sometimes we pray about all these things, and it seems like God isn't coming through. But in the story in Genesis, God comes through. He clearly comes through, miraculously. That's what we learn about God. If we just come back for a moment to the issue that the Galatians were struggling with more specific, specifically, they were starting to believe that their obedience to the law could save them. That's, that was the different gospel. They started to believe that their obedience to the law could possibly save them. I, I actually kind of relate to that. As a young Christian, I made the mistake of simplifying the gospel just to a set of rules. All right, simplifying the gospel to a set of moral values. And I acknowledge that salvation came from Jesus on the cross, but I was trying to perfectly obey the right spiritual morals to merit salvation. All right? Intellectually, I knew Jesus saved me on the cross. Emotionally, that's not how I operated. 
if I do all these things, it'll get me to heaven. Right? My record of obedience became my security, not Jesus' sacrifice. A really strong symptom of having our record of obedience as our security is when we only feel secure when we're doing well spiritually. Right? We're doing well spiritually, yeah, I'm confident, take on anything, brave. I feel good about myself, feel proud of who I am. I'm doing well spiritually. But then we struggle, and suddenly our security, it's all gone. It disappears. <clears throat> if our security goes up and down, it's not really placed in what God has done for us, because that just stays constant the whole time. Right? That doesn't change. That doesn't change, and neither should our security, or how we see ourselves. Because how God sees us is that he loves us completely and unconditionally. And that should be how we see ourselves. That should give us great security. It should give us great self-esteem. We should feel good about ourselves because of that. And, and sadly, as a, as a younger man, it produced a lot of unhealthy qualities. Um, I, I'd be really competitive. Uh, I'd feel competitive with the other leaders, spiritually. You know, who's got the most studies? How's their group doing? Is my group doing better? I look at my spiritual accomplishments and compare them to other people. Yeah. When, when, when someone else had good news read out about them or they shared good news, I'd feel jealous. I couldn't rejoice with them because I was feeling really competitive, because I was really insecure. All right? <clears throat> I mean, I still get a little bit competitive today when I go fishing with Jody Walker. I'm thinking, who's, who's caught the biggest snapper? Have I caught the biggest snapper or has Jody caught the biggest? Yeah, it was Jody last time. He caught both the biggest snapper. <laughs> the, 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 the New Testament morals kind of became my law to be obeyed to merit salvation just like the Galatians trying to follow the law to find salvation. I just want to sort of maybe avoid a bit of confusion. Am I saying we shouldn't follow the New Testament morals or what Jesus taught? No, it's not what I'm saying. Jesus' teachings, spiritual values, they, they teach us how, who, who God is. They teach us about holiness. They teach us about how holy God is and how holy we are not. Right? But they also teach us how we're supposed to love God. Jesus' teachings help us to learn how do we love other people. How do we do that? Right? <clears throat> they teach us, and ultimately, they teach us how to change the world. That's hugely significant. But because we can't perfectly follow Jesus, we have to entrust our salvation to Jesus' sacrifice. We have to entrust ourselves to God's plan of salvation. Right? When we see how much God loves us, that really does produce in us a joyful and eager desire to please him and ultimately to obey him. When we really get it, when we see the sacrifice, when we see God work in our lives, when we see that grace, that produces a deep gratitude and joy. Obeying God isn't a chore. It's something we want to do. It's funny, Anna and I had this little moment one time. There was a movie called The Breakup. Didn't watch the whole thing. It was Vince Vaughn and, and Jennifer Aniston. And they're having this fight. And she's like, but I, but I want you to do the dishes. I want you to want to do the dishes. And he's like... Why would I want to do the dishes? You, you know, I need to enjoy doing the dishes? I don't get that. Why would I want to want to do the dishes? And she's saying, no, I'd like it that you love me enough that it's not a chore to you, but it's something you enjoy doing. It's not about the dishes. It's about the fact that you love me. I think that's kind of, kind of I mean, simplifying just a little bit, right? But the sense that, you know, we can face those things and obey God because we love God because we see what he's done for us. That's our motivation, right? 
Um, last week we had an awesome discussion at the uh, North Shore Midweek, and uh, <laughs> he's from the North, you can't tell that, can you? Um, but we had this really discussion last week, okay, so, so what motivates you sometimes to do the right thing? I mean, apart from, obviously, the right motivations, what are some of the other motivations we have sometimes for following God or doing the right thing? And I was really excited. I mean, we had some awesome, honest answers. One, one person put their hand up and said, uh, fear of punishment. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that if I don't do the right thing, there'll be consequences. I thought, that's so true. You know, often we study the Bible when we're trying to find God because we don't want to go to hell. Sometimes that's it's, it's a part of our motivation. Someone else said, sometimes I, I, I try and follow God or I do the right thing because I want something from God. Which is, which is kind of true. I mean, if there's something that you really, really want and it's out of your control and you're like, God, okay, I'll be really good. I'll, 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 you know, suddenly we find this extra motivation to read our Bible every day. We find this motivation to, to, to reach out to people. We find this motivation to do all the right things because we want something from God that only God can give us. God, I'll be nice to the annoying brother at church. I promise if you just give me this one thing. All right? Sometimes we do the right thing because we want to fit into our church culture. All right? We want to be seen to be fitting into our church culture or we want the respect of our peers at church so we do the right thing. I, mean, I have to confess, one day the poor bag was going around. I had no money. I didn't want the poor bag to pass out me looking like I put something in. So I just put my hand in. <laughs> Right? I'm serious. But that's how much I felt afraid to look bad in front of you guys. So I pretended to put money in like that. Oh, yeah, don't laugh at me. You've all done something like that, haven't you? You've all done something like that. Maybe not the poor bag, maybe it was something else. Right? <clears throat> Sometimes our motivations are to, you know, to have spiritual accomplishments will be recognised or respected for what we do spiritually, right? We achieve in the world, we want to achieve at church spiritually. Sometimes in leadership, you know, you're trying hard to be a good example, but who you are becomes more of a facade. You become afraid that if your Bible talk found out what you, that you were struggling, you'd lose respect and you'd lose influence and you lose your effectiveness as a leader. I mean, I felt that. I felt like I've got to be a good example. I've got to be a good example. I've got to put them... But then it starts to become a bit of a show. You know, I can't be vulnerable with my weaknesses because I'm afraid people look down on me. Well, people won't listen to me anymore because I'm supposed to be the leader and have it all together. All right? Our motivations can be for all these other different reasons. But here's, here's the amazing thing. God's plan of salvation is so awesome because he helps us remove all the imperfect motivations that we may have. All right? When it's God who saves and we've got nothing to boast about, nothing to compete for, we should understand that we're accepted by him, even at our worst. All right? So we don't have to worry about what people think of us. We've been shown an unconditional love and that perfect love helps drive out all fear. All right? That's the theory, right? <laughs> That's how it's supposed to be. That's what God has set up for us. That's why the gospel is supposed to deliver glorious freedom to us. Freedom from all these other things that hold us back. When you truly grasp what God has given you, you are filled with a desire to love him and obey him. 
right? What does it look like in action? Paul wrote in Corinthians about himself, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace had a profound effect on Paul's life. He was just a super Christian. You read about his life, you just think, what drove him? He says it was grace. Grace drove him. That, that all seems well and good, but how do you actually become a person of faith who lives like grace affects you deeply? How do you become that kind of person? That grace affects you deeply. That grace is your prime motivator every day. <clears throat> I, I found one day I've got it and the next day is gone somewhere. I don't know where it went, but it just went. Sometimes I really get it and I see it and I understand it and I'm changed by it. And then the next day it all kind of dissipates and disappears. And it's really challenging, I think, because we're conditioned to believe that you get back what you put in, right? <clears throat> if you work hard, you're rewarded. And even the Bible teaches you reap what you sow. Now that's true, spiritually. You reap what you sow, except in the case of salvation. We reap what Jesus sowed for us. That's the one place it does not apply. Right? That's the one place it does not apply. Now, I'm not saying... Does it mean I shouldn't try and be like Jesus? I shouldn't try and work on my character? I shouldn't try and be godly? No, it's not what I'm saying at all. If you work hard in those areas, you will become more and more like God, more and more like Jesus. That's part of God's plan. All right? What I'm saying is, though, that won't earn us salvation. All right? Only because of what Jesus did do we receive salvation. <clears throat> the more I understand and see what God has done continues to do for me, the more my motivation purifies. The more grateful I am, the more gracious I am, the more secure I am. I'm just going to share a few epiphanies with you that have helped me on that journey of trying to be motivated by grace. Now, I may have said some of these things before, but I, want to, I just want to share them again because they've been fairly profound moments in my growth, my faith, where I've actually gone and I've seen something about God that has just changed me. That has just changed the way I look at myself. It's changed the way I look at my sin. It's changed the way I look at other people's sin, right? Because of what I see in God. Um, I was out praying one day and I was just reflecting on how how much I enjoyed being a dad, right? How much I love being a dad. And suddenly it sort of occurred to me. I thought, I think, I think this is how God feels about me. He's adopted me as His son. And I'm not a constant source of disappointment to him because of my sin. In fact, I almost dared to believe I could be a source of joy to God because when so many people said no to Jesus on the cross, I said yes. Could I be a, a source of joy to God? Wow. If this is how God feels about me, the way I feel about our son, if I've been adopted, the answer is yes. Every, every, every time I, when I go pre-walking, I walk down the hill and I look at our house, right? And I'm just reminded that was an act of grace. To actually receive the house that we're living in now was an act of grace. And one day Anna said something really profound. She said, you know, we spent a lot of years looking after God's house. I think God gave us our house because we looked after his house. And it kind of reminded me of a story in Exodus. There was a time when the midwives were given a command by Pharaoh to kill any male Hebrew baby at birth. And they defied the command because they feared God. And it says, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Because the midwives looked after God's family, God looked after their family. 
Romans 5, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it kind of struck me. You know what? It was on my worst day. The day that God saw all my sin and all my flaws and all my weaknesses. It was that day that God looked at me and said, I love you so much. Jesus is going to die for you. I'm going to sacrifice my son so you can become my son. Profound. I mean, that, that kind of love defies all kind of human reasoning. I mean, how many of us have ever looked at someone, else, someone else's outright nastiness right, and felt love for them and a desire to embrace and sacrifice for them? That's just not a human quality. We just don't possess that kind of love. It's only a divine quality that could do that. Now, I think we can, you know, we can look at our children and still love them when they're really naughty, right? But eventually, a frustration sets in, <laughs> right? But God looked at our blackest, darkest qualities and moments and said, I will die for you because I love you so much. I don't know if some of the marrieds can remember this moment, but that moment you wanted to impress your future husband or wife, right? That mo- Maybe you were courting or you're going on dates, and you always try to put your best foot forward, right? It's always you, you always want to put your best foot forward. But imagine if, if your prospective spouse saw you just put... It was always your worst foot forward. Imagine that, right? They saw everything really, really bad, and they still said, I want to marry that person. You'd be like, yes, please, how about tomorrow? If you wouldn't put up with me like that, <laughs> let's get married tomorrow. You know, I feel really blessed that Anna said yes to me, right? Because I've checked this with her already. Um, at, at one stage, someone told her that apparently even Jesus wouldn't be good enough for her because she was just, just a bit too picky. So I had some very high expectations to live up to. So, you know, I can appreciate divine intervention when it comes along, and I had to wear her down a bit as well, my persistence, before she, before she sort of got interested. Come on. You know? <clears throat> but, but we have to keep looking and finding God's acts of grace and kindness in our lives. All right? I, I think this is really the key. We have to keep looking for and finding and searching for and identifying when God is kind and gracious to us how he has already been kind and gracious to us, how we read through passages in the Bible, we'll start to see it if we're looking for it. That's what I've, that's what I've really noticed when I read the Bible now. Before it used to be about, oh, here's a good moral value, I need to change this. Oh, I'm so convicted I didn't. And that's true, the, the word convicts us. But in between those passages, there was, there, I'm seeing more and more there's passages about God looking after us, God coming through for us, God empowering us, God encouraging us, God helping us. And I, just, I, just, I hardly saw those other passages before. It didn't leap out at me. But I think this is what I'm saying, you have to look for it. And the more you look for it, the more you'll find it. And the more you find it, the more you'll be changed by it. All right? The more you'll be motivated by it. Uh, we have to keep searching the scriptures so we can see God's acts of kindness. So his kindness is our source of strength, which is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 1. Let God's kindness be your source of strength. If we can't see God's grace, it can't teach us to say no to sin. 
Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. If you, if you don't get how gracious and kind God is to you, it's, it's harder to say no to sin. All right? We may say no to sin out of obligation or conviction, but God wants to say no because he's been kind to us and saved us from the consequences of our own sin. All right? And this is why the gospel is so different to every other religion. Right? This is why the gospel is different from every other religion. It's not another set of rules or morals. Right? It's not another set of rules or morals. We are saved completely by God. And because of that, we want to follow the truth. Right? We're saved completely by God. And because of that, we want to follow the truth. I'm just going to finish up. I just want to just quickly mention um, verse 27. Paul quotes Isaiah 54. Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labour, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. So Paul's quoting Isaiah 54. And it's primarily addressed to the returning exiles. So um, <clears throat> the, Judah was... was uh, had been preached to for many years. They'd been, they'd been ignoring God, defying God. He sent the Babylonians. They got taken to captivity off to Babylon, and God brought them back about 70, 80 years later to Jerusalem. So, so the Israelites had seen their, their children, seen their sons killed during the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. But as I was saying, that God would bring them back from captivity and restore their nation. He would help them flourish. But what they couldn't see, all right, what they couldn't see at the time is that God wouldn't stop at just saving Israel. Right? He would bring the Gentiles into his kingdom, and that growth and that expansion would be far beyond what the Israelites could have ever possibly imagined. Salvation would be for all people. And he quoted Isaiah so that the Galatians could see that God had a plan to save all people under the Messiah, not under the law. And that's one of the things I love about our church. It's not all white. It's not all black. It's not all Filipino, but it's becoming that way. <laughs> we probably need more Kiwis in here. <laughs> I've been outnumbered in my own country. <laughs> Don't know about Aussies. Yeah, they need saving too, I suppose. We need more Aussies in here. Yeah. But, <clears throat> amen, I hope the message this morning... Uh, it's been fruitful for you and helpful for you, uh, hopefully inspiring. I just want to kind of finish with a question. Do you want to live as slaves or as free people? Do you want to live as slaves or as free people? Slaves to a set of rules, slaves to worldly desires, slaves to our fears and insecurities? Or do you want to live as free people, free to live in harmony with God under his gospel? Amen. Thank you.